Welcome to this Constitution Unit webinar with Linda Colley on her book, The Gun, the Ship and the Pen. I'm Robert Hazel, Professor of Government and the Constitution at UCL and previous Director of the Constitution Unit, and I'm chairing today's event. Linda Colley is Professor of History at Princeton, where she's been now for almost 20 years. Her book was published just four months ago to rave reviews. It challenges the conventional wisdom that written constitutions are the product of democratic aspirations or revolution, showing instead how often they've been the product of war, the demands of war mobilization or the threat of invasion. Linda's going to speak initially for 10 minutes or so, after which we'll have a panel discussion before opening up to questions from the audience. And joining me on the panel is Dr. Harshan Kumarasingham from Edinburgh University, constitutional expert and historian, whose latest book is Vice Regalism on the Role of the Crown in Political Crises in the Commonwealth. And he's written another one on the politics of decolonization. If you have a question that you'd like to put to the speakers, please write it in the Q&A function as opposed to the chat. These are James, our Q&A facilitator, will select questions in groups and ask each questioner to unmute and ask their question directly. If you'd rather not ask your question direct, please indicate when submitting it and Lisa will ask it on your behalf. Let me now turn to invite Linda to introduce her book. Linda, you're extremely welcome over to you. Thank you and hello. Um, I'd like to start by thanking um, Robert and uh, everyone at the Constitutional Unit for organizing this event and to thank Harshan for agreeing to take part in it uh, and to thank you all uh, out there uh, for zooming in. Uh, I know we are all Zoom fatigued by now, so uh, thank you. Um, for those of you who have not yet read The Gun, The Ship and The Pen, its essential plot line, I suppose, is to do with spread. The book explores how single document written political constitutions, increasingly mass produced by way of print, had succeeded by 1914 in penetrating into every one of the world's continents. Uh, after the First World War, the rate of spread only quickens further. Now, as I tell it, this storyline breaks with some of the customary ways of approaching written constitutions. And, and let me, since I, I don't want to take much time, just focus on three of these. First, whereas many studies of constitutions have focused on single countries only, sometimes in a very patriotic celebratory way, this book adopts a global history approach. Accordingly, I'm not interested in it in awarding brownie points, as it were, for the best constitution. These are good, these are bad. 
not least because in practice, these instruments have been intended to fulfill a variety of functions. So their success cannot really be measured by one single criteria. And constitutions that can seem failures are not necessarily so. For example, the Tunisian constitution of 1861, which I talk about, um, it only lasts till 1864. It isn't remotely democratic, but it's very important because this is the first constitution of this sort to emerge in an Islamic polity. Uh, it influences other Islamic polities. And the memory of this particular constitution of 1861 in Tunisia is still there and active uh, in the Arab Spring, for example. So uh, we need to take diverse views about what constitutions do. Second point in which this book deviates from the way that constitutions have often been analyzed because of what I view as the most significant and recurrent trigger behind these types of political constitutions, I begin my story in the mid 18th century. Now, some have said, oh, well, you know, constitutions go back to ancient and classical times. Um, and it's certainly true that the word constitution comes from uh, the Latin, and it's true that the ancient Greeks, uh, great intellects like Aristotle, discussed ideal systems of rule. But there was nothing, as Melissa Lane, the historian, makes clear, really approximating to what we now regard as a written constitution uh, in existence in the ancient world. And such texts that there were devoted to law codes, ideal systems of rule, they had very limited circulation. Um, so why does this change? Well, for me, while other factors such as the Enlightenment certainly play a vital role, it is the widening costs, incidents, and range of organized violence from the mid 18th century that plays the critical role and a, and a really recurrent role again and again and again in different zones of the world. Um, Big example, I suppose, would be Napoleon. Napoleon with his armed rampages across continental Europe from the late 1790s. It's these invasions uh, that really work, often in paradoxical ways, to spread these types of written constitutions in different parts of Europe and indirectly indeed in parts of South America. Third point I want to mention here, and I'm obviously speeding, in addition to breaking ranks in these respects, if I can put it that way, 
I also hope that this book, and I, I, I trust I don't sound presumptuous, uh, would be not just an exercise in themed global history, but it, that it might help to revitalize and broaden interest in what used to be called constitutional history, which was a big type of historical writing, certainly up to the 1950s, but in recent decades has often come to be viewed, though not by the people here, uh, as mainly the stuff of lawyers and legal experts, as often something rather arid. Um, hence, when I came to write, write this book, I tried to pay close attention to some of the writers of constitutions in the past, many of whom who were not lawyers or bureaucrats. They came from diverse backgrounds, though before 1914, most are men. Um, many of these people uh, were in fact soldiers. We've already looked at Napoleon, uh, another, big example would be someone like Bolivar uh, with his deep interest in constitutions and indeed in drafting what he hoped would be the uh, constitutional model for the new independent South America, something in which he fails. I also tried to situate these written texts in broader literary and cultural histories, because I think this is very important. Um, constitutions are often compartmentalized. They are written texts. They are distributed increasingly widely by print, but literary scholars usually don't look at them. Uh, they're not seen as literature, but in some respects they are. And in fact, many of the earlier makers of constitutions were connected with literature in other respects. They were interested in print and how to use it. They were interested in the written word. Uh, so someone like Ito Hirabumi, who is the main architect of the very influential Japanese constitution of 1889, um, yes, he's a soldier, he's a politician, um, he's a ruthless man, but he's also interested, deeply interested in literature, um, writing poetry in classical Jap Chinese and collecting books, for instance. Um, final point, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but I hope the discussion and the questions will bring some of these points out. Um, final point though, something which we doubtless will touch on later. What about the UK in all of this? As I try to sketch out in chapter five of this book, this polity in the past was by no means entirely divorced from some of the trends, ideas, and movements involved in 
the progressive spread of written constitutions across the globe. Uh, indeed, different Britons at different points of time drafted constitutions, mainly, of course, for others. Nonetheless, it remains the case that the UK is currently one of, depending on how you categorize them, just three polities left in the world today, formally without a codified constitution. Only recently, indeed, Prime Minister Johnson argued that the British people simply did not need and did not want what he styled as delectable disputations on a written constitution. They wanted practical stuff, real stuff. Now, it is certainly the case that the mere existence of a constitution of this sort does not by itself guarantee effective and smooth running democracy. Um, we saw a recent reminder of this in Washington DC on January the 6th of this year. But given that the vast bulk of the world's polities have by now adapted codified constitutions, and given the now evident failings of some of the UK's own systems of government, these political instruments, written constitutions, surely merit here intelligent and informed and wide-ranging discussion. Um, and certainly I think there needs to be more, and of course that's what this unit is about, there needs to be more of what one might call constitutional literacy in this polity, the United Kingdom. Um, so I hope that my book can make some contribution to this. Thank you. Thank you, Linda. I can assure you it makes a, a huge contribution um, to constitutional history and it's far from arid. At least it's, it's full of interesting stories um, and also full of really interesting illustrations in case we don't mention that further in the discussion, um, which you weave into the text uh, by talking about the illustrations. Um, and, and so uh, it is, well, I find it a wonderful read, um, and I'm sure Harshan did too. Can I ask you first, what initially sparked your interest? Did you have any idea when you began that the book would become quite so wide ranging, or indeed that it would take you 10 years? Um not at all. Um, I mean, as I say in the introduction, I, I began to be thinking about these kind of constitutions when I moved first to the United States, which was way back in the early 1980s. 
um, I was in a, a new polity where you know written constitutions were not just taken for granted, but were an important part of people's identity, uh, civic ethos, even if they didn't actually read them. Um, they, they had iconic significance, and I felt well if I was to fit into this new environment, the United States, I, I ought to learn more about them. But no, I, I, I mean, as I began to think more seriously about this um, and how I might write a book around it, I mean, I started focusing mainly on the British case, but then I thought, well, it really has to be more than this. Um, and I began to think, well, could I adopt a global history format, global history being something I, I've been increasingly interested in these past 50 years, 15 years. Um, but it was funny when I started uh, working on this project, um, I'm glad, Robert, that you you don't think this book is arid. I, I certainly tried hard and I believe successfully to avoid it being so. But it, it was interesting to see how many of my colleagues, even some of them in the United States, um, when I would broach this topic and say, well, this is what I was working on, they would say things like, hmm, sounds very interesting, um, in such a tone to make clear that, you know, why was I doing this? So I, I was uh, very concerned to explain and convey, if I could, uh, how these histories could and should be revivified because they are so important. And was war always going to be the main theme? because you give ample attention to things like printing presses and enlightened thought and the growth of communications, but you consistently treat war as the determining factor. Is it your conclusion that, that war was the most important determinant of constitutional development, or are you just trying to give war a place in the sun that it hasn't previously had? Um, I think, it depends, you know, time and place. Um, I'm not saying that war is always the most determining factor. But if we think of recurrent factors in all zones at different times, war seems to me to uh, crop up again and again, or not necessarily war, but violence. Um, I think if you follow violence, you often uh, find a new constitution. And this is so in different ways. Um, it's partly that confronted by much bigger uh, and expensive conflicts from the mid 18th century, some polities are having to increase their taxes, they have to think how they're going to mobilize more men. And this can lead and often does into 
consideration, well, how can we legitimize these increased exactions? And one way of doing it is to issue a new constitution, perhaps for the first time, which may promise adult males uh, concessions if they agree to conscription or if they uh, agree to pay more taxes. Um, this is initially a very gendered thing. Um, it is males that are needed for these more recurrent, bigger wars. Also, the expense of these bigger wars often lead to political crises, uh, the American Revolution, the fall of the French Ancien Regime, uh, the collapse of the Spanish monarchy in the early 19th century. Um, this can lead to the emergence of new states, uh, which may want to announce their existence on the global stage and um, again, seek to legitimize themselves by means of a new written constitution. One of the things I wanted to convey is that while we tend to think of these kind of written constitutions as having domestic purposes, as of course they do, but very often there are foreign audiences in mind too. If you are a new polity, uh, you want to signal your arrival on the global stage, issuing a constitution, mass producing it, having it translated, sending it to different parts of the world uh, is a way of doing that. And it's one of the ways that print is so important. I think too that violence often matters in another way as the rate of Western imperial aggression grows in the late 18th, 19th century and beyond, um, those at risk of this kind of imperial armed force may hope that by issuing a constitution, uh, making clear that they are an autonomous modern state able to govern itself, that these imperialistic attacks may be slowed and hopefully repelled. Uh, one sees that in Hawaii, um, which from 1840 to its end as an independent polity in the 1890s, issues a succession of political constitutions in the hope that this will keep either Western European regimes like the French or the British or the United States uh, at bay and that Hawaii will be able to maintain its autonomy. Um, and you see other polities doing that um, one of the motives behind the great Japanese constitution of 1889 um, is the feeling that is growing from the 1860s that even a big and long established power like Imperial Japan is at risk from 
rising maritime powers, again, possibly the United States, but also the British, the Russians, even the Germans. Um, and so Japan has to show it's a modern state. It has to underline that it is an autonomous state and a written constitution does this, they hope. And it, it does work in Japan's case. Often this strategy does not work. But even now, uh, we have thus far left the age of huge transcontinental wars since 1945. But what one does see in the Middle East, in Africa, uh, in other parts of the world is a much quickening succession of civil warfare. And again, civil wars often breed new constitutions. So I'm not saying war and violence are the only thing that matters. Uh, I'm certainly not in any way at all discounting the importance of ideas and uh, idealism, but war and violence are repeated and significant triggers, I believe. Thank you. Um, we're already indicating the, the vast range of your book. We've touched on Tunisia, Hawaii, Japan, um, but I'm hogging the questioning and I'm going to hand over now to Harshan. Harshan. Thank you, Robert, and thank you very much, uh, Linda. Um, I, was, I was intrigued, um, Linda, when I uh, went through your book about how much um, the crown, different crowns, from, including some of the examples of your views, were used almost in a very creative way in the constitutional uh, process, such as in Hawaii, Tahiti, and, and uh, Norway, uh, you mentioned. And, and I, I gathered that it was a, a useful vessel, even if the individual, individual monarch was not necessarily significant, but it was a useful vessel uh, to be used to, to bridge, as you say, because you, you, you use this wonderful phrase in your book about constitutions are a trademark of modernity. And so do you see the crown in these cases, whether they're local or imperial, as being a useful bridge into this modernity? I wanted at least to make people aware that this was one route, that this was one possibility. Because if one looks at some of the classic works um, like R.R. Palmer's Age of Democratic Revolution, uh, which does talk a lot about um, the rise mm -hmm. of these kind of constitutions in the late 18th, early 19th century. Um, Palmer, who, who was very much an American patriot, ties them to these Republican revolutions in the United States, in France, and the fairly clear implication, which is, is indeed made explicit at times, is that constitutions equal democracy, equal modernity, and the logical end of modernity is republics. Now, you know, some it's a point of view, but in historical fact, of course, certainly up to 1914, most parts of the globe are governed by monarchs or quasi-monarchs. Even in the Americas, um, you know, it's often said, oh, well, the Americas 
all these republics. Well, there are, of course, a lot of republics in the Americas. But Brazil is a monarchy into the 1880s. Canada is obviously a monarchy because it is part of the British Empire at that stage. So monarchs are part of the story. And indeed, if monarchs had just said, we are not playing this game, then constitutions would never have spread at the speed and the variety that they did. So I was interested both in the way that varieties of monarchical figures, mm -hmm. uh, including um, some of these rulers of small Pacific islands that have been left out of the story like Pomare and Tahiti and so forth, um, were interested in in experimenting with constitutional documents. But I was also interested in what becomes generally known as constitutional monarchy, which is a kind of compromise that you, you retain your monarch, but you also have a written constitution which binds the monarch at least in theory, as well as other agents of government, the sort of constitution that Belgium uh, introduces in 1831 in a text that, that becomes very influential elsewhere. So, um, and as I say, it was partly a reaction um, in this case uh, against my American environment not just being inspired by it. And I, I'm just linked to that. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I'll leave that point for now. But Haiti, I thought you're that you mentioned about Henri Christophe was he was fascinating, trying to create a hereditary uh, monarchy there. Again, not for it might, might sound mildly ludicrous to modern ears, but to try and he was trying to create a legitimacy, which he saw would enable him, I think, Linda, to have a in his eyes, a um, equivalence with uh, some of the European powers as an existing regime type. Um, I, I was, as you know, I, I'm very interested in uh, constitutional history, so I'm very grateful you have done this effort for us to um, to make it easier to to write such things. And very gauchely, I might advertise that I'm um, co-editing the Cambridge Constitutional History of the United Kingdom, which should hopefully come out uh, next year, so, and Linda's work is within it. But I, and I was struck by a fact towards the end of your uh, book, Linda, where you said, but I think between 1820 and 1920, there was an, a 20 times increase in the amount of publications of constitutional history. And um, I, I would, and as you say, it's it's fascinating from a literary sense, not just from a a uh, you know a formal documentary one, but a literary and a cultural one. And I, I wondered if you could um, say more about that phenomena and also the migration of ideas, because again, almost in every page you find surprising but real links across globes and uh, across the globe and, uh, and individuals that may seem uh, surprising, but in fact, as you uh, document very well are actually very real and um, effective. Yes, and I think the growing vogue of uh, constitutional history 
in the UK, increasingly from the 1820s, is an example of uh, the passage of ideas and political notions across country frontiers and oceans that while the UK itself um, makes a cult of the doctrine of parliamentary sovereignty, though uh, that has never been thoroughly understood and excavated as far as I can see, but still it's there. Um, and uh, the UK is often in its leaders dismissive of the new written constitutions. Nonetheless, I think there's a tacit recognition and sometimes an over recognition that these devices have certain advantages for the regimes that adopt them. They're advantageous because they can spread ideas within a domestic population. But they are also advantageous because they can broadcast uh, the real and proclaimed values and systems of a polity across the globe, which is obviously something that the British Empire, uh, as it was then, wants to do. So how do you achieve this without having a written constitution of your own that you can mass produce and put into print and publish and send it around the world? Well, as you yourself know and have described, um, this is one of the functions that constitutional history can do. Um, not least because Britain in the 19th century and well into the 20th century has a dominant publishing industry uh, and indeed initially a dominant printing industry so um, you, you you foster this industry in uh, volumes of constitutional history um, and these can be dispatched all over the world uh, they can be translated they can be sent to different parts of the empire um, and you can say look this is how this wonderful system works. Um, take note and learn. Um, and I think this, is, this has to be read in part as the UK playing catch up in a fashion. And that the industry in constitutional history, you, you can trace certainly into the 1950s, even into the 1960s, um, these, these constitutional histories, not just uh, well-known ones, often going through multiple editions, obligatory reading in schools and university in the UK and in the empire when it existed. Um, very, very important. Um, but as you also suggest, the, the wider phenomena of different polities publishing and translating and dispatching their constitutions around the globe also means that the ideas in these different constitutions are drawn on by others 
so that as in Norway in 1814, when they've suddenly got to get a constitution to try and um, get one made before the Swedish armies invade, here we are, war again, um, the, the, the Norwegian uh, writers, they haven't got time. Um, so they, they sort of just get printed books on all the constitutions that they can. Um, and they say, oh, well, we'll take a bit from there and a bit from there. And oh, that's a good idea. Um, and, you know, that's been uh, known since the late 19th century. And um, computer analysis has only underlined the degree to which all constitution writers, without exception, as far as I can see, borrow. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of plagiarism in this business. Now, uh, we're going to come to Q&A from the audience uh, in five minutes or so. So please, those of you listening, uh, keep your questions coming in. Um, but if I can ask uh, Linda a couple more, more questions. Um, first, going back to Harshan's mention of the crown um, and its role and whether there's any conflict uh, between having a written constitution and the country retaining a monarchy. Um, we explored this, as it happens, in, in my most recent book, which was a comparative study of the constitutional monarchies of Europe. Um, and one of the points we were seeking to make is that some of the most advanced democracies in the world, by any measure, countries like Norway, Denmark, Sweden, the Netherlands, jumping across the world, New Zealand, um, are all monarchies. Um, so we were challenging, if you like this, uh, slightly lazy, teleological assumption that um, the ultimate uh, or highest form of democracy um, has to be a republic. Um, not so, not just in terms of history, uh, as you reminded us, Linda, but, but also in terms of, of current politics. Um, but um, that leads me to another point, uh, which I wonder if we could just dwell on, which is um, the, the contrast, if you like, between the text of a written constitution uh, and the political practice, how that country's political system actually works. As part of our study of these European monarchies, I read for the first time the, the 1814 constitution of Norway, um, the constitution of Denmark, of the Netherlands, etc. And if you read those constitutions, uh, you would gain the impression that the monarch rules. The Norwegian constitution, over half the articles are about the king um, to this day. Um, and it's only through understanding the conventions which have overlaid the political practice that you realize that the king governs only uh, with the consent of parliament and on the advice of the government, you know, conventions which we're very familiar with. Um, in Britain, but which apply in all those other constitutional monarchies too. But they're conventions, they're rarely written into the text of the constitution. And so Linda, I was going to ask, given that your interest originally was sparked by the American constitution, um, which you approached initially um, 50 years ago when you arrived in the States uh, with curiosity. One of the things I've long been curious about um, is the extent to which Americans have a similar understanding of the role of convention because their political system clearly operates very differently um, from
from the wording of the text, or at any rate, the text is, is silent in so many important respects, as all written constitutions are. Could you comment a little bit about that? I, I think that's an extremely important point. Um, I mean, in the United States case, of course, one's dealing with different layers of constitutions because it's a federal system and each of the states has its own constitution. And it's very important, I think, to recognize that whereas the federal constitution in the United States um, is very hard to amend and was deliberately made so, um, and this is perhaps one of its problems, the state constitutions in the United States are amended quite often. Um, so you, you've got a lot of constitutional busyness uh, in uh, the United States, which doesn't always appear from the outside. But yes, of course, the unwritten aspects of constitutional systems um, is something that you know, clearly all sorts of the United States political system was not written down. I mean, there's no mention in the constitution drafted in 1787 in Philadelphia of political parties um, in America. You'd have to take a pretty Olympian view of things to argue that political parties aren't um, a massive part of the American political system. And in fact, by the late 19th century, um, when the USA is securely established after the Civil War has gone, American politicians are prepared to say in public that there isn't all that much difference in some ways between the constitution in America and the constitution in Britain in the sense that on both sides of the Atlantic you've got things that are written down but you've got conventions and developments that do not exist in specific formal texts. They are conventions that people accept and abide by. So yes, the divide between written and unwritten is um, a complex one. Um, and as I say, I think that is more and more explicitly recognized. And another thing that's long intrigued me about the American constitution that you might be able to comment on it is uh, the extent to which it's idolized or, or generate my experience of teaching American students, which I haven't done now for a while, um, is that on the whole, they, they spoke of their constitution with, with great admiration um, and, and without much uh, of a critical approach. That may be changing. Um, it may not be true of students at Princeton. Um, so can you explain the idolatry if it still exists? And, and is it now being being questioned? Um, well, it would certainly be difficult for still for, I think, a foreigner to question it. Um, I mean, again, it changes over time. Uh, 
my great friend Eric Foner, who's written enormously on uh, American constitutionalism, he's at Columbia, uh, has made the point that before 1850, idolatry of the federal constitution is much less marked. Um, people are more likely to idolize their state constitution uh, because localism is at, very strong still in the United States. And I think that what has um, increasingly made this kind of idolatry more pervasive and necessary is in part that the United States is so vast, is such a loose federal structure in some ways, um, has states of widely different natures and politics that how do you bring, what can the cement be? And the constitution, constitutional idolatry can be a kind of cement in practice, even though, uh, and perhaps in part because uh, pollsters claim to have found that most Americans have never read the American constitution. Um, but it's like um, mother and apple pie, you know, it's something that you can say you believe in. Um, and perhaps not reading it, not knowing what it contains actually helps you to say that. So uh, it's, it's emblematic. And I think that's part of the reason. And almost from the start, people were complaining that um, ordinary Americans didn't read the constitution. But even while being increasingly prone to worship it and refer to it with quasi-idolatry, if you like. Now, I promised we would come to Q&A, but I've been hogging the questions, Harsha, and I must give you one more crack. So would you like to ask one more and then we'll come to the audience? Thank you, um, Robert. Um, I, I, for those who haven't read um, Linda's book, it's a, it's a, a wonderful, um, almost play of all these wonderful characters and actors that come through across the world. And uh, my favorite I enjoyed reading about was Captain Russell Elliott in, in Pitcairn and, and how in 1838 he had, he had rather haphazardly put together a constitution, but also remarkably allowed men and women to choose their, um, their chief executive. So I, I wanted Linda to take off your impartial historian's hat who was the individual that you enjoyed uh, finding out about and writing about? Well, I enjoyed Russell Elliott too. And um, I, I wish I knew more about the man because uh, I tried finding sources on him and partly because the archives were, were shut for some of the time, I wasn't able to, but um, you know, if, if anyone in this Zoom audience is sitting on a cache of Russell Elliott um, archives, I would be glad to know about it. Um, I think the other person I really was fascinated to find out more about, and again, it would be good to have more sources, is uh, Africanus Horton from Sierra Leone in the 1860s and 70s. 
Um, because when I wrote this book, I, I, I didn't just want to write about the successful constitution writers. I wanted to look at different individuals who were drawn uh, into this, this form of creativity and political um, writing. Um, and Africanus Horton, who is uh, from West Africa, um, his parents were rescued from the Royal Navy from being enslaved, established in Sierra Leone. Uh, Africanus Horton is uh, educated there, then in London and Edinburgh, works as a British medical doctor for the army, um, then goes back with the army to West Africa and has this idea of creating independent West African states with their own constitutions. And some will be monarchies, some will be republics, whatever. Um, and he, he produces all sorts of writings on this, some of which are taken up by uh, West African political activists. And of course, it comes to nothing because the British increasingly move in. But it, he's a fascinating man and he's someone who again is taking ideas from different places. He's taking ideas from Liberia, he's taking ideas from certainly the American Civil War, um, he's taking ideas from J.S. Mill in Britain itself, um, and his schemes are uh, which were rediscovered by African nationalists uh, in the 1950s and 60s. But it, it seems to me that they need more attention now. And I, I, I wanted to include him in the book partly because I'm not, of course, an Africanist, uh, again, to wave the flag and say, here is someone who, who really does merit closer attention. Uh, we've kept the audience waiting too long, uh, so forgive us, please, all you questioners. Um, and Lisa, would you like to feed us uh, a couple of questions in the first round? Yep, absolutely. We've got some some great questions coming in from the audience, um, though, of course, there's always, always room for more, so do keep them coming. Um, we're going to go first of all to Alan Rennick, who's the deputy director here at the unit, um, and then I will be reading out a question from Brian Walker. Alan, would you like to unmute? Um, thank you very much. Um, I must confess that I haven't yet uh, uh, read the book. Um, I'm looking forward to doing so very much. So, but apologies if this is a if this is a dumb question. Um, so I know vanishingly little about uh, constitutional history. I must confess. Um, but two old and almost cliched ideas that I am aware of are first, um, the need to raise funds for war pushes leaders to strike constitutional deals. I'm thinking Magna Carta, but obviously there are many examples. And second. Uh, that fundamental constitution making typically happens only in a constitutional moment, um, i.e. a moment of often violent catharsis. So uh, two questions really. Firstly, do these, these old ideas hold up under your analysis? And secondly, how does your analysis take us beyond them? Hold that if you would, Linda, and we'll have Brian Walker's question uh, as well. 
Yes, and um, the question from Brian Walker very much picks up on that idea of the constitutional moment. Um, so he asks, um, many constitutions that were conceived in war or revolution were ultimately either, either overthrown or ignored. How can we know how many of them were introduced with no real intention um, of granting the rights that they promised, but rather to lure people into support um, for what turned out to be coups? Um, and can you give a couple of examples of where constitutions introduced in these kinds of moments have changed politics permanently for the better? Um, well, let me uh, respond to the last question first, though, I, I mean, these are huge questions. Uh, thank you, um, but I won't be able to uh, answer at length. Um, I, I go back to my point that it's often difficult to know uh, how successful by some criteria a constitution is. Um, consider some of the South American constitutions, indeed many of the South American constitutions uh, from the 1820s onwards. Uh, famously, they don't last many of them for very long, though there are exceptions uh, in Chile's constitution, for example, from the 1830s, does last into the 20th century. But many of them don't last very long. Many of them are the result of revolutions, wars, local disorder, civil war, whatever. But as a result of having so many constitutions, often connected with fighting, what happens is that more and more of some of these South American populations, of course, just the male populations, are enfranchised. Uh, you've got to bring in indigenous people, you've got to bring in former black slaves, and so on and so on. You've got to bring in the very poor. What this means is, if you think this is an achievement, is that by the 1850s, large parts of South America, in terms of uh, male democracy, are far ahead of the United States, uh, they're far ahead of Europe. Um, they are unstable, but they are very democratic. So do we view these flurries of constitutions as a failure or as a success? Clearly, it depends on your criteria. Um, Alan, could you just Briefly remind me, it's, it's always difficult when you get two questions at once. Could, could you remind me what your question was, the gist of it, then I, I will better be able to answer, I hope. Uh, so so the, the two thoughts about um, uh, uh, that uh, you need to raise funds for war and that pushes you to strike constitutional deals. And secondly, that uh, fundamental constitution making typically happens in a constitutional moment. So firstly, uh, do these old ideas hold up under your analysis? And secondly, how does your analysis take us beyond them? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think they do hold up. Uh, I remember uh, talking about some of my early ideas to a medievalist, and he said, well, you know, it's nothing new about that trend, actually, as you said. Well, what about Magna Carta? Um, you know, war and constitutional concessions going together. I think what is 
palpably different from the 18th century onwards is partly the scale and the type of violence. What is causing a lot of the movement after 1750, uh, and I'm, you know, I'm just using it as a, as a a start point, it's not exact, is that it's not just armies, increasingly it's navies. And navies are hideously expensive. If you are a leading naval power or if you are trying to withstand aggression by a leading naval power, if you have to invest in your own navy, fighting men you may be able to clear the jails and recruit them into your armies or just bring the poor into uniform. But ships, fighting ships, you need massive amounts of continuing investment. So the fiscal demands are on a very different scale. And it's really the costs of building up both navies in tandem with armies that is causing even the major uh, powers, Britain, France, Spain, rising problems uh, because they've got to try and afford both. And you can see the constitutional implications of that in all cases. Similarly, Japan, as soon as it's got its constitution in 1889, you can see its defense spending zooming up, and a large part of that is on a, a, a Japanese Navy, uh, and having that allows Japan um, to defeat China and to defeat Russia uh, in the Russo-Japanese War, uh, two conflicts which have considerable uh, repercussions, not least for the spread of constitutions. So uh, yes, violence and constitution making you can, or constitutional concessions, the need to raise money and constitutional concessions goes back a long way. But the quality of violence and its geographical range and its expenditure is just on a, a different scale from the 18th century onwards. Uh, did you want to answer also Alan's question about a constitutional moment? What exactly do you mean by a constitutional moment, can I ask? It's one of those rather vague terms, uh, but it's the, I, I guess it is the idea that you often hear in British constitutional history that we've never had a constitutional moment. We've never had a moment of catharsis that has required uh, a, a process of deciding what the basic rules are, because we're just kind of following along on precedent all the time. Um, so the idea that you need some kind of um, catharsis, often war, often uh, or, or independence, or you, but 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 something where you need a fundamental uh, reconstitution in order to establish basic rules, and that without that constitution making just isn't going to happen. And, and again, I, I haven't read the book, and the more you talk, the more I'm looking forward to re reading it. But. Uh, um, uh, I, I just felt that some of what you were saying felt that it fitted in quite closely with that kind of idea. Um, I think it's certainly the case. Um, politicians are always busy 
there's always many things to do other than um, sitting down and agonizing about new constitutions. So yes, you, you often need some kind of uh, enforcement from outside or enforcement from within, um, as you say, an independence struggle, um, shattering military defeat, uh, civil war, or the threat of that or something. Um, and you could argue that parts of what is now the UK did have a clear, con well, several constitutional moments in the 17th century. Uh, the civil wars of the 1640s, um, you have the leveler projects for a new kind of constitution, you have the instrument of government of 1653, then you have the so-called glorious revolution of 1688, which results uh, in the Bill of Rights, uh, uh, an important uh, document, um, though not a constitution per se. What I think helps to safeguard, if that is the word, Britain from further dramatic documentary constitutional shifts of this sort, if you leave out the Reform Acts, um, is partly good luck. Um, I mean, if the UK had been defeated in the First World War or the Second World War, would it still have a monarchy? Quite possibly not. Uh, would it have subsequently acquired a new constitution? Quite possibly so. Um, when one thinks that defeat, invasion in these world wars did often result in new constitutions, either imposed by the Allies, as in Germany and Japan, or uh, generated from within to um, get over the humiliation of invasion as in France. Uh, but of course Britain did not get defeated in these wars. Um, and the fact that there hasn't been a major civil war in the island of Great Britain since the 17th century, a successful civil war, uh, the fact that there hasn't been a successful invasion from without, the fact that there hasn't since uh, the American Revolutionary Wars been a really traumatic uh, defeat overseas that uh, affected the essence of the state uh, helps to explain, I think, why the existing system has persisted it's not just the fact that that hasn't happened also helps to legitimize the existing system. Uh, it can be said, it often was said, particularly in the 19th century, look, other states collapsed before Napoleon. We didn't. It just goes to show how good our political system is. We are particularly blessed. Um, now, of course, the Irish situation is very different. Um, in Ireland, the First World War does help to precipitate 
uh, serious civil war and revolution, uh, and you get uh, the partition of Ireland uh, in the early 1920s with the what becomes the Republic of Ireland acquiring, of course, a written constitution. But what remains of the UK uh, still continues to avoid this. What will happen, of course, if Scotland secedes, whether this will be the crisis or cathartic moment which makes what is left of the UK reconsider its constitutional system, we will have to see. Now we're coming into our last 10 minutes and I think we have just two questions more. Linda, would you like to take them one by one? If there's time, yes, that would be good. Lisa, then could you feed us a, uh, one of the two remaining questions? I could indeed. And um, as it happens, they both function almost as follow-ups to some of your comments just now, which is very handy. So um, I think we should start with uh, the question from Titus Alexander, uh, which is a very contemporary question um, about the lessons from history for the processes of constitution making. Um, I see Titus on screen now, so I'll hand over to him to ask it. Hi, thank you, Linda. Uh, just viewed from Scotland, the, it's clear that the UK constitution is not really working. And so I'd like to know if you can recommend from your panoramic view a process for either the UK to create a more inclusive constitution, and given that it's probably unlikely for Sco an independent Scotland to develop a constitution that is more robust, resilient and flexible to allow for political development. Mm. Um, well, I think I'd start by a general that drafting new constitutions now is, I think, more difficult than it once was. Um, if you think of the men of Philadelphia in 1787, a narrow elite, all white, all male, all prosperous, being able to shut themselves away for over three months uh, and communing among themselves. And then here we are um, from above. And yes, of course we will um, have it ratified or not, but we've made it. Um, this kind of process you can't do in the much less deferential world of uh, the early 21st century. So working out how you get around that, how do you create uh, constitutional conventions uh, that help to generate a new constitutional system and text, uh, how you make it more representative, how you make it legitimate is very hard. Um, and that's why you need, I think, some, some kind of uh, what my students still sometimes call an emergency situation um, to uh, compel people to um, focus on this and make them willing to invest the time and interest. Um, but the fact that something is hard doesn't mean it shouldn't be attempted. Um, and 
I think it would be possible, or at least I think it would be desirable for, but this is my, um, my own view, uh, I'm not speaking as a historian, but as a private citizen, it would, I believe, be desirable to make the attempt, uh, or at least to start discussing at a higher and more sustained level, how that attempt could be made. Thank I mean, I, be I believe, um, who knows what's going to happen in Scotland, but I think it is the case, isn't it, that the SNP has committed itself to a written constitution in the event of uh, Scotland uh, becoming independent, is that right? Uh, I, I can think I can answer on behalf of Titus, but Titus, correct me if I got this wrong. Yes, I think that is correct. Um, and coming back to Parshan's interest in the Crown, um, I think they've also committed um, in due course to holding a referendum uh, on whether an independent Scotland would continue to be a monarchy, um, because there uh, is some disagreement within the SNP, um, which has a, a Republican tendency. Um, but let's now, in our remaining minutes, uh, come to our final question. Um, and Lisa, would you like to introduce the final question? Yes, so our final question um, is from Gil Richards. It takes us back to the road not taken in the UK. Um, I can see Gil, so go ahead. Thank you. Um, I, I think one of the most interesting things that I found was the fact that in, in Britain, as um, as you put it, uh, Professor Colley, uh, that it, it rejected the lure, as, as you put it, of the new political technology of, of constitutions. And in Britain's case, you you put this down to things like um, the popularity of ancient notions of English liberty, good finances, um, and the fact that Britain managed to invade, uh, avoid invasion. Um, but you also wrote in, uh, in your book, Britons, of how towards the end of the 18th century, um, the relentless and increasing demands of public life place an extreme amount of stress on British uh, on, on Britain's rulers. I think the way you phrased it, I think you said it was a, there was increasingly um, Sturm und Drang quality to um, to patrician life towards the end of the 18th century. Um, this to top off a century of invasion threats, uh, rebellions, imperial trauma, etc, uh, radical agita agitation, that kind of thing. Um, given the strains elites faced and the seemingly global recourse to con constitutions that was happening at the time, could you explain why you think it is that British elites themselves didn't push for something resembling a written constitution, if not only to, um, I don't know, to calm radicals, uh, entrench their own status and reorganise a, if successful, still slightly dysfunctional state suffering um, under the strain of the French wars? Well, I think at that particular time, um, the new um, conservatives would call them at that time paper constitutions were just damaged for many British politicians in reputation by the fact that uh, Republican France and Napoleon backed them so uh, extensively. So they became damaged by connection, if you like, in lots of people's estimation in that period. But I think more broadly, and uh, in chapter five of the book, I talk a lot about Jeremy Bentham's ideas, uh, but also John Cartwright, another radical. Um, there are quite a lot of British uh, radicals and reformers 
in this sort of 1780, 1830 period, who are talking about the possibility of written constitutions. And of course, it goes more broadly than that. Some chartists, having created the People's Charter, uh, wanted this to be the germ, as it were, of a more developed written constitution. There's lots of accounts of Chartist meetings in the 1830s and 40s in different parts of the UK, um, giving toasts to the idea of a written constitution, saying, well, you know, the real problem in Britain is that we don't have a written constitution and we should get one. Um, and arguments for written constitutions recur more often than is sometimes thought. Uh, the movement uh, for a more federal system in the UK and in some people's minds in the empire at that time, before the First World War, there was quite considerable recognition by some backers of those schemes that if federalism was to be properly introduced, then it would need a, a written constitution. Um, and Winston Churchill, for example, uh, in his younger and more radical phase, um, was quite interested or thought he was quite interested in these projects. And I think if one goes into British history in a non-teleological fashion, and instead of saying, oh, well, let's show why it didn't happen, uh, go in with rather more open-sided questions. Um, let's look at the spectrum of debate uh, and who is raising possibilities of what a written constitution might do and why it might be more congenial. Uh, you, you'll come up with lots of examples uh, obviously, they don't win, they don't come through, um, but those voices are there. Um, you know, again, Britain is, is not as exceptionalist as certain interpretations of its history uh, have maintained. Well, uh, it's gone 7.15. It's time, sadly, we must pull this to a close. Thank you, the audience, uh, for your questions. Special thanks to Linda for a brilliant discussion about her book. I hope we've managed in this seminar to convey something of the flavor of its extraordinary range and interest. Thanks to Harsh Chan um, for being my fellow discussant, and thank you, all of you, for attending. The event was recorded, and it'll be posted online on the Constitution Unit website, the YouTube channel, and on our podcast. We'll let you know when the recording is available and we hope you might share it with others. We're now taking a break over August and our next monthly seminar will be in September with details to be published in due course on our website. Uh, so this is our last seminar of the summer season. Thank you all of you, have a very good summer break and we look forward to seeing you again in the autumn. And special thanks to Linda, thank you and goodbye.